This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexanian. Alright everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm Ethan Alexanian, yada yada yada, you don't want to hear from me. Today, we have a great guest, even though it's our second episode. I know, I have some reach. We have author, professor, dean, music historian, cat lover, and most importantly, Beatle fan, Kenneth Walmack. Ken, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for the shout-out to my cats. Uh, although they are very happy right now with uh, sheltering in place, they've never been happier, quite frankly, than having their humans around. My dog's quite happy, too. <laughs> I always see you posting every day on Facebook uh, your cat photoshopped into some sort of historical situation. It always gives me ah, that a would... smile. <laughs> That would be my famous cat, uh, Gertie McDowell, and she is well known the world over. She is, uh, she's kind of mean and feisty, but uh, she is uh, quite a character. Well, you know, that's that's what you want in a cat, though. Am I wrong? <laughs> you are correct. All right. Um, so you have a new book coming out, Ken. So my new book is entitled John Lennon, 1980: The Last Days and the Life. Um, and it fills what I believe is a very significant gap in our scholarship and really the story of John Lennon, and that is aggregating and bringing together uh, all of the stories, um, but in such a way where the music is central to the tale. <laughs> um, and I, I do that because John, one of the, the things that John used to say, in fact, he was saying it in one way or another on the last weekend of his life, that the most important thing about the Beatles' legacy and his le legacy was the music. And that will be the part that shines through forever. Um, you know, uh, while it may have been important uh, for first generation fans to think about the fashion and the clothing and the haircuts and, and all of those sorts of things, in addition to the music, those things hardly matter to a person you know, like myself, right? I'm not a first yeah. generation fan or, or many or all of the fans in the future. Uh, it will be the music <clears throat> that really draws people in. And so I wanted a story that talked about John sort of pulling himself off of the deck and coming up with several classic songs really in the last month of his life and, and building himself back into something that he felt comfortable uh, showing the world. And, um, that's that's the exciting story to me. So uh, I'm hoping that my publisher will use a, a kind of tagline that this is not about how he died, because it is not, but how he lived. And that's that's the beauty of it. Like John Lennon, when I think of John Lennon in 1980, I try and not uh, to just think of the assassination. I'm, I'm trying to think of double fantasy and all the stuff that was recorded then and his return sure um and it's uh w one of the interesting things that you discover when you when you look closely at the story is that um you know his return was being plotted much much earlier uh than those last months uh, he often in his last interviews would trace his comeback to going to bermuda um <laughs> and he certainly does that would have been the summer of 1980, and he does some amazing work that summer. There's no doubt about it in Bermuda when he, he travels there. But many of these songs, like Watching the Wheels in particular, had been around for a while. He'd been thinking about it for a long time and uh, working on bringing it to fruition. So... Um, one of the interesting things about doing the project is going back and accounting for that. So I had to do a lot of work to sort of dig into the past to show when he started working on a song like Nobody Told Me, which was roughly around 1976. And parts of it were probably rolling around in his head from 1974. And oh, yeah. And what's fascinating about that is that was always how John Lennon wrote uh, in the sense that even back in his Beatle days, he would work on song fragments. 
Um, and there's so many great examples, right? The pieces that went into I've Got a Feeling or mm-hmm. A Day in the Life. <laughs> um, those were song fragments that he would bring together and find um, a sort of more fully realized whole, and he would create something out of those songs. So uh, Double Fantasy was no different. For example, Just Like Starting Over is three or four different songs fused together. Um, and uh, I love studying his process and how he would bring off these ideas. I'm just processing that. Wow. I've never really realized that, that he had such a uh, fragmented approach to songwriting. But I'm thinking back to just like starting over, and I can kind of hear those three separate songs. Sure. There was one called The Worst Is Over. Uh, there was another one called I'm Crazy. <laughs> And all of these, I think it was called I'm Crazy, but um, and in any event, uh, he would merge these ideas together and, um, you know, create several different sounds. He and McCartney were doing this quite early. Remember, they would call their musical bridges, they would describe them as middle eights, uh, as, as subsections of their songs that were differentiated from the chorus uh, and the verses. And... You know, John, thinking as McCartney and he had done very early on when they were still teenagers, would think spatially about music. Um, and in a sense, uh, it does have him standing out in a, in a certain kind of artistic way, say, from the others. Not to say that he's better necessarily, but different. Um, a great example would be I Am the Walrus, right? Which he wrote over several different writing sessions and where he sort of hauled all of these ideas together. So shall we proceed with the you part of the interview? Oh, whatever you'd like to do. Um, <laughs> Is there anything more you'd like to say service. about your book? Um I'm very, uh, uh, there are a number of of new details that I've been able to glean uh, and uh, authenticate for the story um, that I'm not quite ready to divulge just yet. Um, Holding your cards. One thing I'm. Holding your cards close to your chest. That's right. That's right. I'm I'm not the greatest poker player, but uh, some of these things need to be saved at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing that I'm intensely proud of, and I've tested this on several, I guess we call them beta readers now, right? Um, And that is the issue of uh, how to deal with his death itself. Mm -hmm. Because again, the book is not about, it's about him and it's, it's about him living. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very proud of, of the way I conclude the book um, and, and maintain the spotlight on him and his art. And the last word in the book, I'm happy to say, is Sean Lennon's. Uh, uh, just a, a beautiful piece that I found in one of his essays about how he thinks his father may have come up with watching the wheels uh, and how, how it had connected with him when he was very, very young, still four or five years old. Mm-hmm. All I can say is I am very excited to read this book when it eventually comes out later this year. That's right. Do you have a release date yet? um, Officially, it's going to be released in in October, but I think we'll be seeing it um, earlier than that. I think we'll see it in September. Um, And uh, just very excited about it. Uh, There'll be a a special edition um, that will come out to... Uh, that will have uh, maps from the period, um, uh, that will have uh, different kinds of period photographs and maps, so that it, what I really wanted the book to do, and, and what I feel like it does pretty well, is it also takes you back to 1980 in New York City, the place where John Lennon lived, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, for anybody who knows New York now, um, well, especially right now where nobody's on the streets, but, uh, but, but the New York City of the 21st century is very, very different than the one 40 years ago in which John Lennon lived. Um, it was a place that had a much higher crime rate. Uh, buildings were in disrepair. Um, city ordinances had not uh, arrived at the same kind of high quality standards that they strive for today so it was a very gritty different kind of place and I really try to help the reader feel what it's like to be in that space way back then um, when the world was different uh, and New York in particular was very different.
from what I've read, um, New York is, well, as you said, a very different place now, because the tourist trap, Times Square, used to just be um, just prostitutes and crime before it became kind of uh, Disney-fied, if you will. <laughs> that is exactly right. And I happened to go uh, visit the city not long after uh, Lennon had been murdered. And um, and that, that kind of gritty Times Square still existed back then uh, in its... Um, in its way. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad I saw it, though, because, of course, now, uh, you it's know, the areas entirely. That's right. It's heavily policed. But also, um, in addition to that, um, you know, there's just the, the very natural fact that it has become such an expensive place that the, the financial, um, you know, price of admission alone limits uh, the uh, people's ability to, um, you know, to live there and, and spend time there. So a lot of those, the sort of seedier places simply were run out of town because of uh, the high rents, right? <laughs> The unstoppable wave of gentrification. There you go. That's right. All right. I have a few kind of, I want this to be structured like a conversation, but I've given myself a few kind of ground posts so it can guide the conversation along just so I don't completely run off the tracks. Okay. And I think I'll start with the first thing. When did you first discover the Beatles? I discovered the Beatles in a really lame kind of way. Uh, quite f- Well, no, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's kind of a, a kitschy story. I kind of like stories like that. Um, so do I. Yeah, I mean, it almost makes it more fun, although it, it's very uncool. I discovered them um, uh, when I was, I believe, 11 years old, and I was... Um, I think it was breakfast. Yeah, it was definitely breakfast. And my favorite show had been preempted. It was a terrible show called the New Zoo Review. And it was this strange show where you had these uh, characters who were animals who lived with humans, not like our pets, but okay. but like fully fledged friends and neighbors. And I mean, they had names like Freddy the Frog and I think Henrietta Hippo. I feel embarrassed and- now because I consider myself like fairly knowledgeable about pop culture i have never heard of the new zoo review yeah it's uh, you can find it on youtube and it wasn't i mean the 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 point that's interesting to me is at a certain level it wasn't any good um no offense you know you new zoo reviewers out there who still exist but it was it just wasn't very good it was kind of a Yeah, but it was kind of a strange little show where, um, you know, that Freddie would sing a song or Henrietta Hippo or the humans or whatever. Um, And the thing about it that was interesting that I think a lot of us are like or like this, I I definitely am. I got used to it being on uh, and, and maybe it was a bit of OCD or something, but I got used to this show being on. So one day when it was gone, even though it wasn't very good, I mean, I was pretty pissed because it had become part of my routine. Uh, and I would watch this thing. I think it was on at 7 a.m. And, you know, by about 7.30, you had to leave to go to school. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, it, it really pissed me off when the show wasn't on. And they preempted them. And, of course, the, the show had been canceled. I didn't know this at the mm-hmm. point. And it just or, – or my network, my local station down in Houston had quit, quit uh, bringing it forth. But um, – and they replaced it with the Beatles cartoons. Oh, and uh, there they were. And, um, you know, the cartoons themselves are fun, but, you know, they're, they're not great artworks. But what no. struck me almost immediately, uh, I think actually immediately, was just that the songs were spectacular. <laughs> I think the first one I saw, I don't know why, and it, it doesn't make sense in terms of the order of the cartoons, but I feel like it was help. Um, and if you recall, each episode would have two songs that would mm-hmm. be... Um, you know, sort of showcased, um, and it was probably the probably the episode. Uh, I, I think I'm just remembering that one episode because it, the song was so uh, really connected with me. I think it was actually probably the "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I saw her standing there episode. But anyway, um, I was just immediately struck by how great the music is. 
And uh, what's interesting to me in in this kind of deep retrospect is that's how everybody discovers them now, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's such a second, third, fourth, whatever generation. It's how everybody will discover them. You will hear them in mm-hmm. some form. Maybe it will be on YouTube. Maybe it'll be on some music distribution service. Maybe it'll be on television. Or in my case, it literally was on television. It almost doesn't matter what the, the format is when people discover them and thousands of people, maybe maybe more, have discovered them just today. People are discovering them in the time we've been on this conversation. That um, is statistically yeah. probably true. Yeah, and when they do, we both know what happens. You're like, wow, this music is different and better than the other things I've heard. Mm-hmm. It just immediately stands out. And when I talk to my students today, you know, who are now 30 years younger than I am, when, when they talk about their Beatles experiences, it's almost the same thing, even though it may be a different format. Mm-hmm. It's universal. The music comes first. Right. And when you hear it, it just, you it know, just it's... Grabs you. Yeah, it's different. You, I guess the probably the the, um, the 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 formative word is that it's it's different. You hear it and you think, wow, you know, I can I still like I don't know. Uh, you know, let's pick on Taylor Swift. I still like my Taylor Swift, but this is different. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way that you might hear Mozart and say, "Wow, I, I like Mozart a lot better than Smithers from that period." Whoever Smithers is, that you know, there's just uh, it's elevated and it's better. I guess I'm uncultured because the first thing that came to mind was Mr. Burns' assistant. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I should probably not use that example. (laughs) Ah, I was only born yesterday, so. (laughs) So how did you go from seeing the Beatles on Saturday morning cartoons to where you are now with the Beatles? Well, I I had uh, doting parents, like so many of us do, and... um, uh, and actually, it was not Saturday morning. It was every morning. It was on the way to school. Um, I use Saturday and, morning as a kind yeah. Of, like, oh, I knew what you meant. Yeah. But but I bring this up for a reason. So you know, after a few mornings of me listening and thinking about them, uh, my father got in his carpool one day and uh, went downtown into Houston. <laughs> and when he came back that afternoon, he had a stack of Beatles books. Okay. Um, yeah, and it was the kind of thing that, you know, parents do, right? Your kid get interested in something, you go and you, you know, you kind of pick up what you can about that subject. This was 1977, so, you know, at this point, um, the, the kind of material available uh, about the Beatles was was very different. There wasn't very much of it, for one thing. Um, the only Beatles books I can think of from that time are that illustrated record and uh, Wally's book. That's right. And uh, so, in fact, I remember which books they were. Um, so I do believe one of them was one of uh, Wally Podrajic's books, like you said. Um, another one, um, I don't think the illustrated record, they didn't bring that home from the library. I did get that, that one shortly after after this period. <laughs> and then Nicholas Schaffner's book had just come out, although I didn't have it yet. And then um, there was also Wilfred Meller's book that uh, the library had, uh, The Twilight of the Gods, which I was in no way prepared to read at that point in my life. Um, It was way over my head. Um, And it's really musicology, as you know. Um, But it was just something to sort of stimulate my interest. And I think what it signaled to me, um, you know, here I am listening to this music and thinking, wow, this is amazing. Where has this been? But at the same time, I'm seeing that there are books written about them. And of course, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records were big at that time. And so, you know, I would look up in the Guinness Book and the Beatles would be all over it for, you know, uh, for their greatness uh, in terms of sales and and those sorts of things. So it was, uh, I think it was signaled to me pretty early on that this was something important in more ways than one. I find it kind of interesting, as, like as opposed to everyone else who I've talked to, where it's they've you know gone out and gotten an album first. You go out and get the books, which it's kind of fitting in a way because it's like a supervillain origin story, and now you're this best-selling Beatles author. 
Uh, you know, it it is kind of my approach. And maybe, again, it was being modeled by my dad at that point. But that's what I do. When I'm interested in something, I go get the literature on it so I can learn more about it. And, I do the uh, same thing. Yeah. And I mean, uh, and sometimes I'll even read several different books about the subject to try to get different perspectives, right? And, you know, if you want to do that with the Beatles, it's ridiculous how many different perspectives you can get. Yeah, because on one hand, you have, like, the Mark Lewisons of the world, and then you have the uh, Albert Goldmans. <laughs> yeah, and now, you know, that that's a great pair you just brought up. Uh, Mark mentioned them, I think, just last week. Uh, and... Uh, you know, Mark is is a is not a critic of Albert Goldman. Um, he is, uh, you know, he gives the late Albert Goldman a lot of credit for um, the kind of uh, assiduousness of his research. Um, in fact, all of his, I believe, his papers are available in the city. Um, you know, where he he has his notes and et cetera to underscore the quality of research. My issue with Goldman has always oh. been, uh, my issue with Goldman has always only been, uh, well, two things. One, I'm, I'm just not interested in that story at a certain level. Yeah. You know, the sordid private lives of, of other people at a certain point, nobody stands up to scrutiny, right? Everybody has things they're embarrassed or regret, embarrassed about or regret. Um, and uh, um, the kind of tell-all uh, sort of sordid parts of that book, um, you know, I, I have issues with just because, you know, uh, at a certain level, that's not what I'm interested in. But then what, what my biggest issue with, with Goldman, um, and I think Mark agrees with this, we, we talked about him a few years ago, but um, my biggest issue with Goldman is his music criticism. You know, he he really simplifies John and he, I don't know if you recall, he talks about him uh, being uh, the writer of songs that are always based on three blind mice or something like that. And I remember thinking, well, that is, you're, you're missing, you know, really, you can, uh, just because a couple of, of his songs have these descending cadences, like all you need is love, that's, that's the whole of him. You know, where do you put across? the universe or watching the wheels you know these are amazing songs that's that stand on their own or number nine dream right yeah uh one of his late interesting uh compositions that had very uh, interesting changeable structures uh, you know and several of his songs have multiple key signatures so my issue with goldman was that um you know in the story again uh like I said, most of us won't hold up to that kind of scrutiny. John Lennon's no different. But when you look at the aesthetics of his creation, you know, that's what's amazing about him. Mm -hmm. And what really bothers me about the Albert Goldman book is he did all this fantastic research, as Mark Lewison said, but he didn't use a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, th I think that's a fair point. Um, and, you know, again, uh, you'd wonder why he, because it's a dense book. I mean, I'm looking mm -hmm. at it right now. It's on my, my table here. It's a dense book. It's such and a to dense do, book. If you hit someone over the head with it, I think you'd be able to give them a concussion. Oh, absolutely. There would be trouble. Um, but, but I guess my point is, it's such a dense book with all of this research. And yet, like you said, he doesn't draw anything from it. So his, It's a dense and, book and it's a dense book. Yeah, right. And you almost wonder if, if he had such disdain for John's work, um, why devote that kind of energy? I mean, I guess money, but, <laughs> but why devote that kind of energy to somebody's story um, that you don't think perhaps is up to snuff. Mm -hmm. And there was this interview I saw with him in Liverpool, I think. And someone asked him, do you just not like pop music? And he said straight up, no, he thinks it's <laughs> too simple. And that just kind of explains it right there. His terrible takes on John's music. Yeah, and and that's that's unfortunate, right? Because if you if you feel that way, 
going in, then, you know, why are you going in? Mm -hmm. uh, like I, like I said earlier, the excitement of that story to me is watching him draft a song like watching the wheels, mm -hmm. uh, or beautiful boy, just dozens and dozens of times until he finally brings the right elements together and he's ready to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's like great painting, right? You're watching this painting being made and that's exciting. But when Goldman perhaps could have been watching those demos create and amalgamate into this splendid whole, instead he was more interested, you know, in heroin and yeah. infidelity and all of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move us a little bit back towards uh, you. So, okay. apart from the books, what was your first Beatles album or single or what have you? Yeah, so, of course, when um, this is 10, year, 10 full years before the Beatles come out on CD, and so all of the American releases were still in vogue. If you went to a record store, those would be the albums you would see. Mm -hmm. um, not long after, or roughly at the same time, my father bought all of those uh that brought me home all those books. He also went and got a German release, um, The Beatles' Greatest, um, which is a book that has, uh, an album rather, that has, I think the cover is from the uh, Rubber Soul Sessions. Um, and I think it, it's, it, um, I think I have that one. It's the back cover of Beatles for Sale, I think. Yeah, it may be, but it, the, what's interesting about it is it's it was a German release, and it was a kind of a greatest hits album mm -hmm. from the first two or three years. Yeah. And uh, so I listened to that pretty profusely. Um, I think the next album he got for me was The Beatles' 1967-70. Um, and I'll have to ask him um, if it was conscious. It May, probably wasn't, but um, I had the record for The Beatles' Greatest, and I had the cassette tape for The Beatles' 6770. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what strikes you is, uh, you know, even when I was that young, was, wow, you know, these are very different bands, even though it's <laughs> yeah. the same band. I mean, the band that makes, you know, Please Please Me and Strawberry Fields seems, very, those seem like completely different bands, and I guess in many ways they are. Hell, but it doesn't even seem like it's the same band that made Strawberry Fields and Let It Be. Those seem yeah. like different bands. No, that's a very good point. So, um I remember being struck by that. And in fact, um, after wearing out the Beatles' greatest, which again is just these songs from 63, 64, 65, and then suddenly, uh, right, suddenly having uh, the Beatles 67, 70 with all of these songs, like I Am the Walrus, etc., it was a bit of a culture shock for me. Mm -hmm. um, I remember sort of having to uh, consume it in bits. Um <laughs> <laughs> a little overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it took me a while. I remember sort of slowly discovering those songs over a period of months. And then I remember um, for my, I guess it would have been my 12th birthday. So the next year in 1978, um, I, you know, I started uh, to buy the American releases and I wasn't doing them in any kind of order. You know, I, I think I bought a lot of them at Target, believe it or not. Um, and uh, yeah, and I remember, uh, I think it was for my birthday. No, it wasn't my birthday. It was sometime later in the year, my aunt uh, brought over the White Album which she had bought for me because I wanted it. She, I still don't think she likes the Beatles much today. She's still with us, but uh, I'll, I'll check with her, but I'm almost certain. Um, <laughs> and anyway, I got the White Album and I went up and played it. Of course, by this point, I'm familiar with back in the USSR, right? Uh, because it was on the Beatles 6770. But I remember Happiness is a Warm, no, it was Glass Onion coming oh. on. And I thought, wow, this is different. I mean, it sounded like the early Beatles in a certain sense, right? It's kind yeah. of a straightforward song for a while. Um, but then they talked about a dovetail joint. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, my God, it's about drugs and I'm going to get in trouble. And I was, you know, my aunt. a reoccurring theme. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get in big trouble here. And my mom's downstairs with Aunt Molly. This is going to go really bad, going to go really badly for me, of course. 
you know, years later, I've learned from my father that a dovetail joint, and in fact, a, a piece of, it's a carpentry term, right? It's about making good engineering. Um, if only I'd known that that one afternoon, I wouldn't have been so stressed out. <laughs> so you were just paranoid in your room, listening to the White Album, thinking that's that right. you going to get in trouble. Right, because of their drug use was going to come back and hit me. <laughs> but in, <laughs> instead, I was I was missing John Lennon's metaphor, as one would do when you're 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And you said you had heard back in the USSR before you had heard the White Album. Did right, because really it was... Did that prepare you to hear songs like Wild Honey Pie? Oh, no, no. And of course, you know, this was, a, this was an LP. And, you know, with a record... Until you start moving the needle around, you're really a prisoner. The Beatles and George Martin had sequenced. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was no getting around Wild Honey Pie yeah. um, or any of the other songs. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, you know, it even, even as an adult, right, it's a strange album to behold because you have all these different styles stacked one upon the other. There's no rhyme nor reason. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll go from a, what, a country song, a countrified song like Rocky Raccoon, and then you'll be, suddenly it's Don't Pass Me By, you know, and then you've got, uh, what, Hades. Why Don't We Do It On The Road, I Will. Yeah, all this crazy stuff sort of mashed together, very intentionally sort of swatting us around uh, mm -hmm. from different different kinds of sounds. Yeah, it's... Even to this day, when I have friends who are discovering the Beatles for the first time, and they inevitably listen to the White Album, I always hear from them afterwards saying, that didn't feel like an album, that felt like four albums. Oh yeah, and it, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, in contrast to now, what did the Beatles mean to you then? Yeah, and you know, you know, it's interesting. They've they have meant different things at different times. Um, I I was definitely in love with the music back in those days, and it was exciting for me uh, to hear them for the first time. Um, to go back and uh, figure out which ones I loved. I think the next album I got was Love Songs. Remember that? That yep. bootleg? Uh, not bootleg, but one of those compilations yeah. that Capitol put With together. The fake um, leather brown and cover. I vividly remember discovering the song I'll Be, I'll Be Back. Yeah, yeah. Really, this kind of cheesy looking album. And, uh, you know, um, it was uh, in those days, uh, I would be discovering the songs um, and uh, they would hit me on a different kind of le level, right? I'm about to be an adolescent at that point. Of course, you know, in a few, within a few years, um, I'm discovering some of the solo work. Um, I think I discovered coming up about the same time John Lennon did in April 1980. Uh, when John discovered it, he discovered it the same way I did in a car. He was riding with Fred Seaman uh, around Long Island, and they heard coming up, and John was like, blown away that he heard Paul on the radio. Uh, I remember hearing it uh, and knowing it was Wings, even though I'd only had a few of their records by this point hearing the live version my father and i were going to the dentist which you know i hated going to the dentist i, I that's not original <laughs> by any means and i remember we were coming back and we heard it and we both kind of enjoyed it together and there was an interesting connection um and then of course lennon is killed by the end of the year and that changes the whole story mm -hmm. uh that because a culture shock in and of itself uh having John Lennon, he just came back after a five-year hiatus, right. just had this fantastic album, and then all of a sudden, he's gone. Yeah, I, and I went out and purchased it when it came out in, uh, I think, late November 1980, and I had had it on display on my dresser, <laughs> so I would see it, and uh, I, I was just stunned, right? I'd only known this band for nearly three years and had only just begun learning about them. And suddenly this, you know, this thing happens. Uh, it, 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 you know, it was obviously awful for his family, but, mm -hmm. you know, for, for those of us out there, it felt, uh, I remember vividly feeling, you know, like I'd, I'd been personally robbed of something, right? Because even though we're not related to them, they are yeah. in a sense, family to us because, Many of us have grown up with them. 
Yeah, and we let them into our hearts with their music. So um, uh, that was pretty stultifying. And that's probably why, frankly, at some level, I needed to go back and write this book to reclaim, I don't know, that period or that place. If I may ask specifically, uh, how did you find out that John Lennon had died? Like, where were you? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, because everyone know, has a story of that. Yeah, sure. And mine uh, would have been very contemporaneous. Um, I'd gone to bed early. So I would have been uh, 14, about to be 15 and uh, in a month, uh, two months, I guess. But um, so I was 14. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you're that age, you know when your parents are coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was laying in bed. And I could hear my dad walking down the hall and, you know, I'm 14. I went to bed early. I was kind of tired and I was thinking, I don't want to be bothered with whatever this guy's got going on. Right. (laughs) Uh, And so um, he kind of looked in my room and I, you know, I just pretended to be fast asleep. And, uh, you know, he he uh, went back downstairs. And the reason why I bring this up is because he must have uh, just heard it uh, on um, television, right? Uh, during the uh, during the, um, the s- Monday, Monday Night, Night Football. Football. Yeah. Exactly. And so the next morning when I woke up, he had already left for work um, and I was having my cereal or, you know, I'm sure it was cereal there on the, uh, the, he had set out the morning paper, which I believe the Houston Post was the morning paper and the Houston Chronicle was in the afternoon. And there was that, you know, picture right there of, of John and, and the announcement that he'd been murdered. Luckily, I haven't had to live through a death of a beetle. Uh, <laughs> I just barely missed uh, George's death by a couple months. Um, but it'll be a, a terribly sad day when we lose Paul or Ringo. Sure. And, and this was... <sighs> You know, just god awful. There's really no other word for it. Um, it's just a, you know, yeah. just a terrible thing. And it's he was taken in such a self, a senseless act of violence. Oh, certainly. And um, you know, I, I I usually phrase it, and I may have earlier this during this call. I mean, it he was wrenched out of the world. You know, one minute you're there, the next minute you're not. <laughs> um, it makes no sense. Um, and it still doesn't. <laughs> no. It, I, it doesn't make sense, or it didn't make sense then, doesn't make sense now, and I don't think it'll ever make sense. No, certainly not, no. Well, as George Harrison said, right, right afterwards, to rob life is the ultimate robbery. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to then, what, is it, what do the Beatles mean to you now? Um... So today, um, I think the issue I have that we all do uh, is a kind of over-familiarity, right? So now it's trying to find new things inside of the music um, that I haven't heard before or haven't heard in a certain kind of way. So that's, that's sort of the place I'm in now, is trying to um, hear them differently. It helps that... Um, you know, I, I regularly teach the Beatles, mm-hmm. and so for that reason, I get to hear them through other people's, you know, lenses, mm-hmm. or see them through other people's lenses. My students, uh, you know, the privilege of having this conversation with you, and and those sorts of things are really, <laughs> those things are really, it's really helpful to me, right? Because, uh, you know, you want to discover new things and hear things in different kinds of uh, isolation and distinction, and so that's the challenge for me now uh, is trying to find those those places. But, you know, at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, Hearing John Lennon sing that uh, that perfect version from, I guess, February 1968 of Across the Universe yeah. still moves me maybe in a deeper way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, and thinking about him, since I've been studying him so much recently, um, you know, and now being older than he was when he died, it really strikes me how 40 is so very young and it's younger now than it was in his day. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, 
you know, he, he was robbed of the opportunity to go back and rethink how he felt about things and people. And, you know, even listening, as I have many, many times to his interviews on that last weekend um, with Andy Peebles and, and others and then uh, Jonathan Cott and then with uh, Dave Scholl. did interview like the day he died? No, he, he was interviewed the day he died by a guy named uh, Dave Sholin, um, who was a wonderful uh, voice and radio from RKO Radio, uh, lives out still in, in the Bay Area, is a wonderful person and, and was very kind enough to talk to me for this book. Uh, he had done the Playboy interview. They started doing that even when Double Fantasy was still being produced in August and September. Um, it had only just come out, though, because it was being held for this big special uh, issue of the magazine around the time of the release of Double Fanny. So it had been around for a couple of months. There was a big interview in Newsweek that was done slightly uh, contemporaneous to that one. The last weekend was Andy Peebles from the BBC. Um, well, that was on Saturday into Sunday. And then on Friday, Thursday and Friday, he had seen Jonathan Cott from Rolling Stone. Sunday, he... Took, mercifully took the day off and then Monday he was interviewed he had a photo session with Annie Leibovitz and then was interviewed by Dave Sholin uh, and his team mm-hmm. and uh, just the gems throughout the, that weekend mm-hmm. let's bring this back to a slightly lighter note <laughs> yeah I, I can go dark pretty fast oh don't worry I can match you on that <laughs> what is your favorite memory of being a Beatles fan my favorite, my favorite fan stories um, are shared ones that involve shared experience. Um, so f- I do a record club uh, here, here at Monmouth University. In fact, we just had one last night on U2's The Joshua Tree, um, and we do these record clubs. Uh, it's called Tuesday Night Record Club once a month, uh, and we're doing a few extra right now because of the confinement. But um, and they're virtual, of course. But what's amazing about that? Uh, and what I like about that kind of fan experience is the notion of sharing something. So, for example, when we when Sergeant Pepper turned 50 a few years ago, we, of course, did Sergeant Pepper uh, as part of the uh, as part of the series. And what was wonderful is just sitting in a room with, you know, 200 people, uh, 200 other people and listening to A Day in the Life and, you know, just sharing the song in silence there's something very powerful of that about that kind of communal experience. So those are my favorite experiences about um, about experiencing the Beatles or music in general is just being able to share those kinds of things with people. And I single that out because that's different than say going to a concert where you're being jostled and yeah. somebody spilling their beer on you and uh, um, yeah. somebody spill a beer on me at a Paul McCartney concert at Fenway Park. Exactly. You, so you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's yeah. this, this the awkwardness of of going to concerts um, can sometimes. Oh yeah, you still love it, and you're glad you went. But but it's different than sitting in in a room with a great sound system and just sort of in general and in a communal fashion sharing the music. Um, there's something very special. You mentioned Mark Lewis, and when when White Album turned fifty, we at a conference here uh, at Mammoth two years ago, and Mark was our keynote speaker, and he came in early mm-hmm. as a favor to me, and we did the record club together, and we had 400 people, and we would play different songs, and to have the experience of Mark being there and all of these folks listening to the music together, you know, that's just amazing. Of course, he critiqued me, <laughs> as he loves to do, and then nicest kindest way uh i love mark's demeanor but he would be like well why are why are you playing mp3s you should have a victrola you know set up or a phonograph set up here and play the original vinyl (laughs) and of course you know all all i'm thinking about is well wait a second you know the record would skip i'd bump it you know what if something goes wrong i can control an mp3 yeah (laughs) but uh you know but but he loved it too he loved the communal experience if I may touch on the communal experience, I think that's what made my uh, first trip to the Beatle Fest last year so impactful to me, because I've never had a, a communal experience involving the Beatles before, and it 
just hit me in such a deep place being surrounded by all these people such as yourself and all these just people celebrating this music yeah I, I'm just kind of I I I'm I like right yeah now. I like that I I I like I like that point too um <laughs> you know that that's what makes even at its cheesiest you know that's what uh, that's what makes going to Beatles Fest worth it right <laughs> because um you know you're still having this shared experience and. You know, in life, we don't have that that often anymore. Um, I mean, and look back to the Beatles' own day. I know we weren't there, but, no. um, you know, in those days, remember, there was, what, there were three channels, three yeah. networks, some in some cities, only two. You were where I'm from. I think right. One. <laughs> right. So in those days, you know, things were just very, very different. And um, I bring this up because it just reminds us how probably more than ever, Right. We need we need those kind of experiences because things are not as communal as they used to be. In fact, right now and hopefully by the time you air this, it'll be over, but probably not. Huh. No, uh, right this now, will probably <laughs> uploaded uh, today or tomorrow. Yeah, right now we're actually having as close to a shared experience as we can. Right. In the world where the world has kind of stopped or slowed in some places because of this international crisis. And there, there will be a kind of touchstone point where we can all reflect back on, you know, April 2020 when, um, when we all stayed home for a while. Yeah. It's weird to think that we are living through a monumental historical event. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of. It, like it is kind be, of. This will have books written about it. This will be in the history books. Oh, for sure. And it's just kind of happening to us. Yeah, um, and you know, it it exists outside of our control. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. So here's something I always like asking people who are knowledgeable about the Beatles and. Frankly, I don't think I could ask anyone better than you, except for maybe Mark Lewison, in terms of knowledge of the Beatles. What is your favorite weird piece of Beatles trivia? Um, it's not weird, um, but it's it's again. I'm I I tend to uh, um, to say uh, to, to to stay with the art, um, <laughs> and and that's what interests me, I guess. But where I'm going is. Uh, um, I, I'm always astounded. In fact, we, we have so much, I told Mark this, uh, one evening a few years ago, you know, that, you know, I think I, I'm embarrassed him a little. I said, you know, I've had this whole great life because of you. I remember when it happened. I was in a, you know, a bookstore and there was his Beatles recording sessions. And I thought, my God, I don't know what this is, but I need this. Right. And of course, it was amazing. And it still is a, you know, a kind of Bible uh, for me. It's the place I go to. And what I learned, too. Yeah. And what I learned when I opened it up, right, is. You know, you'll have a day in 1965, uh, and you know I'll, I'll get some of this wrong, but your your listeners will understand. Oh yeah. Um, that uh, well, but there'll be a day where the Beatles will record. You know, I've just seen a face, and yesterday, and I'm down, and it might even be the same day. You know, and they'll do all these amazing songs, and they're doing them so quickly and so well, and in some cases, they never return to them. Right. Mm hmm. You know, I you just I mentioned reminded me of my yeah. favorite quote from the Ruddles, where uh, <laughs> they were talking about the first album. It's like the first album took a day to record. The second one took even longer. Yeah, that's exactly and well well done. That that, uh, that uh, but what what to me why I say that's my favorite. Um, piece of trivia about them is it just reminds us of so many things that are valuable. One, they worked really hard and they worked all the time. Uh, two, that they had such an embarrassment of riches always emerging from their work that it was coming so quickly and so fast uh, that they, they could barely get it down before they had to get to the next thing. And I think that's in a lot of ways, that's their story. Mm -hmm. 
just rushing against the clock to get the new LP out. Yeah. Um, if I may share my favorite piece of Beatles trivia, I know you aren't a big fan of the personal, or that's not your uh, specific favorite aspect. I'm okay. No, I, I'm interested in it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that the, the personal aspects are defining you know, when it comes to telling their story. So, no, I, I have no problem with it. I just don't like to do it to the point where it starts to... Take um, away from the music. Dull. This, that's right, yeah. Exactly. But my favorite uh, piece, I read somewhere that in 68, uh, John called it emergency, or emer- ugh, an emergency meeting at Apple, uh, dragged all the Beatles there, <laughs> And then informed them that he was, in fact, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right. He was very high when he did this, and the meeting was shortly thereafter adjourned. You know, I, I love that. I do like that piece of, of trivia, and I like it for, for more reasons than just... Um, the sort of period moment uh, where he thinks he's Jesus. I also like it because it reminds us that he may very well have been, and this would make sense with his psychology. And of course, we understand this so much better now than than folks would have back in those days. He was very likely manic depressive, right? Of course. That's a very yeah. That's a very common um, conclusion of folks who have that affliction. Um, uh, bipolar, right? That sort of thing. And, uh, you know, they simply didn't have the vo- the vocabulary to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do like that one, too. I'm yeah. glad you shared that. It, it's my favorite thing to whip out whenever I'm, you know, trying to talk to someone about the Beatles. And they ask me, what's the weirdest thing about the Beatles you know? <laughs> right. And, of course, the others literally did not know how to deal with that. No. I, Yeah. <laughs> And I'm going to fire some quick questions at you because we're almost, uh, I think we're almost at an hour here and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, what is your favorite Beatles song? Wow. I think the most important one's a day in the life, but, um, that doesn't matter about importance. What's your favorite? Yeah. Uh, my favorite's happiness is a warm gun. Really? Yeah, I I think that they're just on fire with that song, and uh, it speaks to so much that was great about them. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side of that coin, what is your least favorite Beatles song? Ah, it's Mr. Moonlight. You're the second. I've had two guests on this podcast so far, and both of them have said Mr. Moonlight. Oh, who was the other guest? I have to know. My Uncle Paul. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Well, Paul's right. And uh, um, in fact, uh, Kid O'Toole and I, Kid Kid O'Toole and I once did a show on this, uh, on this very issue at Beatles Fest, a a session. Um, And of of course, as I grew up, and I learned more about the Beatles, um, you know, the song they could have included instead was Leave My Kitten Alone. I know, which is eminently better. But I there's a certain charm to Mr. Moonlight that I kind of like those kind of uh, droning harmonies. I kind of like the cheesy organ solo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I know you know, respect actually, for me is just dwindled. Yeah, but, but, but you know what? I can respect people liking the song, right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, John um, sings it with incredible gusto. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, it, it is in many ways kind of who they were, right? They liked doing something kitschy like that and throwing themselves into it. You know what I think one of the coolest things about the Beatles is? You mentioned, you know, the, the Jesus Christ story. I love the fact that when they had the biggest stage in the world mm-hmm. and they're doing the Sullivan show, yeah. that they play till there was you, <laughs> right? They don't need, they, they had so little need to be cool at that point. <laughs> They didn't care. They did a piece from the Music Man. I mean, I love that about them. That actually may answer what my least favorite Beatles song is. Oh, what's that? Till There Was You. Controversial, but that's what I think. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. 
All right. So on another note, what's your favorite Beatles album? Um, it is, uh, well, that changes a lot. Um, what are your top three favorite Beatles albums? <laughs> Probably uh, Abbey Road, um, The White Album, and Sgt. Pepper. Not necessarily in any kind of order, uh, because... They were trying to do big, great things, and I love ambition, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, I, I love when when artists say, you know what, we're going to go do something different and better, and they throw caution to the wind, and that makes the Beatles great. And of course, the other thing that does, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, is they start with "Love Me Do" and they end with "Abbey Road." Exactly. It's almost a straight upward trajectory um, where they just get better and better and better and even better still and then they walk off the stage forever and speaking of and just nobody off else the does stage. that quite the same way speaking of just walking off the stage on that high I don't think there's any better piece of recorded music to end a band's career than the end <laughs> Right. Um, no, I would agree. Yeah, the, as far as we were concerned, hearing those solos and, of course, uh, the beautiful cadence um, with the piano and the couplet, and then, of course, the surprise second ending with Her Majesty is yeah. very powerful stuff. The unintentional second ending. Yeah, but it, it, it was beautiful because it punctures the idea of endings in the first place, right? All endings are just beginning something else. Mm-hmm. And... I think this is my last kind of structured question. What's your least favorite Beatles album? Oh, wow. The least favorite one. If you say the one that It's Paul not going to be a pop. I, I don't be. know which one Paul said. But mine is, uh, mine is actually going to be with the Beatles. Oh. Um, I think it's... Uh, the music is generally great on that record, but um, I, since I've been teaching the albums for so long... Uh, it it just feels, particularly when you think of it outside of the I Want to Hold Your Hand single, yeah. um, while there are many leap forwards on that record and many great performances, it doesn't have the flash and the spark of Please Please Me. And then, of course, A Hard Day's Night comes along and it's this great piece of original work. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's probably with the Beatles. I know that's probably not a, a popular choice, but it's the one for me. That that is an interesting choice. What about you? Um, it's a very interesting choice. I'd have to say, "Let It Be." I really thoroughly dislike that album. Hmm. You know, I I would have said that it wasn't a favorite of mine um, until I got to see it through the eyes of my uh, my youngest son. He. <laughs> Uh, I remember when he was discovering the Beatles and he just took a connection, took a liking and made a connection with that album. And I saw it through his eyes and I began to reevaluate the whole business. But that's the Uh, beautiful thing about it. Everyone interacts with the music in a different way. And that's exactly why I've started this podcast is because I want to hear these stories from different people about how like different aspects have touched them yeah um so i've i've reconnected with that one in in interesting ways is there anything more you'd like to add well just it's been a great pleasure talking to you and uh, i'm glad to be part of the podcast it's uh these are great questions and um and and what you just said to me is is the the common denominator of this band and why we're still in love with them and we like talking about them it is because you know first of all the quality is so incredibly high and so special but then also that you can hear another person's perspective and connect with different parts of the story in different ways um and it and every time you do it becomes this more full and more nuanced and rich kind of story right it just becomes more powerful it never gets old exactly i think the beatles can just be summed up by that they just never get old no, and they and even when they get old, they don't get old. No, I mean Ringo's eighty. Or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he will be this summer. That's weird to think. The Beatles' music sounds relatively modern, um, but they're like in their late seventies and early eighties almost. That's right, and um, uh, 
and part of that that modern sound that contemporary sound we owe so much to george martin for um for being able to to make those records as clean and as perfect as possible so that they do stand the test of time if i may just butt in here if any of the listeners at home have not read your two-part uh, george martin biography of maximum volume and sound pictures you're doing yourself a disservice go read them now well, thank you for that, and uh, and do send my best wishes to Uncle Paul. I will. Um, so, I think that about sums it up for this week. Next week, we'll have uh, Kiddo Tool on the show, and I don't know how to end these podcasts yet. This is only the second one. Well, you're going to have the queen of all Beatles media, so... I will have uh, the queen of all Beatles media. You're your Talk More Talk co-host. That's right. <laughs> if I actually may be honest, I was a little nervous in asking you to get on the show. So I asked Kit first, how do I ask Kenneth? Oh, God, what did she say? <laughs> oh, no, she just, she said, um, uh, tell him he can plug his book. Oh, you didn't have to tell me that. I, yeah, I, this has been a lot of fun. And Kit's wonderful, but yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So, Kenneth, thank you for coming on the show. Awesome. Well, dude, let me know when it's out and available. I, I will let you know. All, All right. right. Well, you, you have a good one and stay safe out there. You too. Stay, All right. stay safe, stay home, sanitize your hands, and uh, <laughs> have a good night, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. I don't know. I, I'm not good at ending this. So You'll find a way. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.